Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Pat Cummins. I'm Josh Hazelwood. I'm Lisbon Kawaja. I'm Mitch Marsh. I'm Mitch Stark, and you're listening to the Unplayable Podcast. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk all things cricket with former Australia fast bowler and Adelaide strikers coach Jason Gillespie and recap the Australian women's one-day whitewash over Pakistan in Malaysia with cricket.com.au women's editor, Laura Jolly. We start with Jason Gillespie and discuss Australia's test team, the batting order, bloody young players, one-day captains, the strikers, and how he would fare if he was playing in the BBL these days. Dizzy, thanks for coming on the show. Mate, what's been keeping you busy lately? Family, really. A uh, bit of family time, um, doing the school runs, and um, just having a bit of downtime after the county season finished with Sussex County Cricket Club, and um, and before the Big Bash kicks off in December with the Adelaide Strikers. So uh, it's a, I suppose it's a, it's a natural break for, for me in my uh, working year, I suppose. And uh, it's just a great opportunity just to um, spend some time down on the on the Flurio Coast here in South Australia and, uh, and, and hang out with my family and friends. Wonderful. Well, you've been doing that, Dizzy. The Aussies have been playing test cricket over there in the UAE and it didn't go all the Australians' way. What were your takeaways from that tour? Yeah, I think everyone understood it was going to be a, uh, a tough tour for the Australian team and it was going to have to take a, a pretty special effort to, to beat Pakistan in the UAE, which has got a pretty formidable record, it must be said. Um, so we, we all understood um, and with a with a lot of change in personnel in, in recent times for, for reasons that we, we're noting to now. Um, it, but I, I've seen, regardless of the result, I, I saw this tour, um, much like the, the tour to the UK, the, the one-day tour to the UK, I, I've seen this tour as an opportunity for, um, for some Australian players to, or some guys to be offered opportunities and, and try and... Um, show what they can do, you know, show their talents and uh, showcase what they can do to the selectors. And, um, you know, and I think what, what we saw in the UAE, um, while it was a, you know, a 1-0 loss in the, in the series, we did see a bit of fight in that first test match um, after being under the pump. Um, you know, the, the batting uh, group, you know, led by Osman Khawaja, uh, Tim Payne, Travis Head, Aaron Finch, um, you know, saved that game. Um, so, so that was a real positive um, you know, I think obviously Usman's uh, performance was uh, was a real positive. I, I think you know we saw Aaron Finch uh, be afforded an opportunity to open the batting, um, and he certainly didn't let him or his team down. Um, you know, I think the questions will be where he bats moving forward uh, in the Australian batting line. I think that's been from from the cricket commentators the, probably the big question. Um, moving forward, but either way, I, I think Aaron deserves an opportunity. Um, yeah, we saw Travis Head and Manus Labishan be given opportunity, uh, batting in the Australian middle order, and, and they showed signs that you know, they can uh, not only survive but uh, 
perform well at test level. And, um, you know, we saw that bowlers, it was pretty pretty tough going for them. But I thought Nathan Lyon was excellent. Um, I thought John Holland actually bowled a little bit better than probably his figures suggested. Um, and it, it was pretty tough for the quicks. You know, Starkey, uh, obviously, um, just tweaked his hamstring there. But I thought it was a great return to the Australian set up for Peter Siddle, uh, I thought, on very unresponsive wickets and, and obviously having to back up quickly, um, you know, uh, from first innings to second innings on a couple of occasions, you know, with with, with the batting, um, you know, losing some wickets quickly, you know, lose, lost some wickets in clumps, having to go out there and the bowlers having to go out and back up um, without too much of a rest, I, I thought was a real credit to them. Before we get into the batting, Diz, as a fast bowler, can you explain how difficult it is just to get up day after day, especially when the batting doesn't go your way, that you're forced to back up and not have a day's rest, much like the Aussie Quicks have experienced in recent times? Yeah, it, it is a real challenge. And, and I think the the public um, you know, underestimate how challenging that can be. I think you know when... But when you see teams perform strongly and, and put a lot of runs on the board and, and get those three fifty plus scores in their you know in you know in their first innings, um, you see the the bowlers are, are given at least a, a full day away from the bowling crease and away from standing in the field, um, and that don't underestimate how not only physically beneficial that is, but mentally beneficial that is for uh, for the for the bowling group and. You know, I think that that I think I think everyone's identified that, and even Justin Lang has identified that, that the biggest challenge is, um, you know, for this Australian side moving forward is, is how they can put together a, a number of significant partnerships to to get those um, those batting scores up, you know, north of, of 300. But look, I, I've got nothing but you know, I've had nothing but admiration for the Australian bowling attack for the last few years. Um, you know that, that they have had to back up uh, quickly. Um, and they've just cracked on and, and, and done their job. So that's a testament to to their their physical prep, uh, their mental uh, mental strength. So on the batting, do the Australians have to make a lot of changes for the start of the summer? Dizzy, Sean and Mitch Marsh didn't have a great tour, but as you mentioned, Aaron Finch performed, Amanis Abishane got better in every innings, Travis Head looked good. What do you think about that top six for that first test against India? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it looks like that Usman Kawaja is going to be touch and go to be ready for that test and probably unlikely, which is a, a real blow because I think, you know, Usman has, you know, unfortunately for him, has probably been, um, I think, has, has probably been left out uh, in certain, certain times when maybe he shouldn't have been. Maybe he hasn't quite been given the backing and the support uh, that he's probably deserved. Um, you know, there, there has been a lot of talk in recent times about horses for courses, and um, you know, maybe his you know question marks about his ability to play on the subcontinent. Um, you know, and for me, I, I think I think everyone everyone knows that Usman can play, and I, I think you know. Him moving forward, I think he's needed to be, you know, which I don't think's happened in the recent past, is be allowed to learn and develop playing on the subcontinent. Yes, he may have a, a, some ups and downs, but uh, he's certainly not on his own there. But, you know, I think Australian cricket got identified that Usman Kawaja is a, is a pretty special player, and, 
um, to be able to give him the opportunities to, to learn, maybe potentially make some mistakes, but learn from those mistakes and, and be a better player. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I fully expect to, um, when he's back full fitness, um, see him making a, a real impact with the Australian side. Aaron Finch, you mentioned it before, he performed very well opening the batting uh, in those two test matches. Do you see him as an opener, Dizzy, or could he slot down in the middle order where he has batted for Victoria and Yorkshire in the past? Yeah, uh, look, I've often said with Aaron Finch not to look too much at his first-class record. He's played a lot of his his cricket for Victoria. Uh, um, In recent times, he's played first class career for Yorkshire and most recently Surrey and, and he's batted in the middle order uh, over in the UK. I think he's batted between four and six uh, in those, those batting positions. I, I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think he's opened the batting in county cricket um, in, in four-day cricket. Um, look, he, he does a wonderful job in one day and T20s at the top of the order. Um, I, I sense that in an ideal world, you know, Australia would like to have him in the middle order. Um, you know, and I, I think that that could be a positive. You know, if Aaron comes in three or four down, and hopefully in Australia the score is north of you know 200, 250. You know, I, I think a player of Aaron's calibre who can really give momentum and impetus to a to an innings. Um, you know, Australia could could find themselves 350 plus quite quickly. Um, just with the way Aaron play his natural game, um, you know, and I think that would need to be encouraged, you know. Um, so I, I, I sense that, that there may be an opportunity for Aaron to to bat in the middle order moving forward, but in the in the shorter term, particularly with Usman Kawaja possibly not being fit and available, um, Australian selectors might decide that you know they want to have a have a bit more of a look at Aaron at the top of the order. Um, possibly opening with someone like uh, Matt Renshaw, um, which I don't necessarily think would be a bad thing. I guess there are a number of spots available in that top six that haven't been cemented so far. So just how important is the Sheffield Shield competition going to be leading up to that first test? Do you think the selectors are going to put a lot of weight on the runs of score by players there? And can we see maybe a couple of bolters that are maybe on the fringes or outside the selection circle at the moment that could come into that first test squad? I, th- I think this really comes down to the messages that the selectors are specifically giving players around the country. If the selectors are saying we are taking Sheffield Shield form into consideration um, and players who perform will be strongly considered, it, players who perform in the Shield competition will strongly be considered. The, the issue, the, the potential issues that come up with that is that some players that are in contention for test spots are not going to have an opportunity to play Shield Creek. Mm. Uh, therefore, and I think Justin Langer has alluded to this, that players, some players may therefore um, be considered on the back of their shorter form cricket form, uh, particularly if they haven't been afforded the opportunity to play Shield Cricket. Um, so look, it's a really, uh, look, this is a real challenging one for um, Justin Langer, the, the, the selectors. Um, to balance that. And I think the key, absolute key, is the messages that uh, come out after the selections have been made and the clarity of communication to all players around the country in terms of how how guys have been selected, why they've been selected, um, 
And, and for me, that's the absolute key. And, and I'm sensing that that's been a bit of an issue in the past um, with players around the country. They're not sure how much value there is that has actually been placed on Sheffield Shield performances. So I think potentially moving forward, I think that's something that the selectors can can look to address if they haven't already done that. We don't know. They may, may have done that. But certainly that clarity on... Um, selection criteria and how important Sheffield Shield performances are going into a selection for the Australian cricket team. Well, the standout performer in the first round of the Sheffield Shield was Will Pekoski. Diz, would you be against blooding a player who's only 20 years old, throwing him into the uh, a baptism of fire and the heat of the battle of Test Match cricket so young? Look, I, I, I personally wouldn't be against it. Um, you know, but again, I think it does come back to the the balance between picking on performance and picking on potential. Um, you know, is that skewed too far towards potential, or do you look at? Well, I mean, I think he got a hundred last year, and then in the hundred fifty plus score in the Shield late last year, he's, he's now in in an early. You know, he's played less than ten games, and and he's got a double hundred. Uh, recently, uh, you could argue that it, he is being picked on on performance, even though he's only played a, a, a small amount of games. Um, as I said, I think it does come down to that uh, balance between potential and performance, and again, it comes down to that clarity of communication um, from the selectors to all players. And you know, look, if a good young player is a good young player, and if the selectors feel strongly that there's an opportunity to blood a young player, then go right ahead. No, I've got absolutely no issue with that. The key is to actually blood them and give them a good go. So I, I, we don't want to see the situation from, if we remember, from uh, Hobart mm. a couple of years ago when a couple of players were selected, played one test match and then jettisoned. Uh, I don't think that's fair on anyone. Um, and it, it does give a message from the selectors to the... Uh, all the players around the country that uh, there's a sense of panic and, and, and what you want is is well thought out selections um, pick and stick and communicate that clearly with all the players around the country I know this, we're looking in the future a little bit now and you're still um, well in the coaching ranks at the moment but is selection one thing that you would consider down the the track. I mean, you seem very passionate about it and it, and it is such a big and important role in, uh, in Australian cricket yeah, look, I, I'd certainly uh, love to be involved in um, selection at some point in the future. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, it's, a, it's certainly a challenging role, and I, I think it, it's not to be underestimated how challenging it is for for Australian selectors. Um, you know, I've, I've alluded to a couple of the issues that can crop up um, with regard to scheduling. Um, you know, you only have to look at uh, in the recent times with the 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 50-over one-day competition, domestic one-day competition in Australia is played very early in the season. And then players are being selected almost on the back of Big Bash form because it's hard for selectors to judge how a player is going in 50-over comp- cricket when there hasn't been 50-over cricket played for four or five months. Um, so so th- these, these are, that's just one of many challenges that, uh, that selectors uh, have to go through. But... But certainly, in answer to your question, yeah, look, I'd be certainly, uh, I, I'd, I'd be certainly open to um, 
to discussing that moving, you know, in the future at some point. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm very focused on my roles as a as a, a coach of the Adelaide Strikers and, and coach of Sussex County Cricket Club in the in the English County Championship. So uh, I'm busy with those, but look, certainly uh, it would be something I'd be very interested in uh, sometime in the future. Right. Uh, well, before the Test Series against India, Australia host South Africa in three Gillette One Day Series matches. It looks like Tim Payne might have played his last one day. Uh, I read some quotes today from uh, the Tasmanian coach Adam Griffiths saying that they're going to potentially look at Tim for round three of the Sheffield Shield, which would be uh, right in the middle of that one day series against South Africa. So if that's the case and Tim Payne is no longer the one day skipper for Australia, who do you think could step up and, and be the leader of that team? I, I think at this point, I think Aaron Finch is probably in the in the frame to, to do that role. Um, you know, should should that happen? And, and I, I, I sense that that would happen, and, and I also sense that it's probably the right thing to do as well. Um, you know, I think I think Tim in a in a short space of time in in very very challenging uh, circumstances, I think he's done an amazing job with the Australian Test set, Test team, leading leading the Australian cricket team. In Test cricket, um, I, I personally uh, would uh, be in favour of him continuing to lead the Australian Test side and uh, captain that side, wicket keeping that side, um, and ha- and have that role moving forward. I think we've, we've seen Alex Carey's been afforded a couple of opportunities in the in the limited overs uh, formats, and I would like to see that continue. And I, I think. It's a situation where there will be at some point in the future, a year or two down the track, that there'd probably be a natural handover of the wicket-keeping gloves from from Payne to Carey, um, and then in that time, uh, you know, a successor to be Test captain would uh, would evolve in that period of time. But but yes, yeah, certainly from the one-day perspective, I don't see any reason why. Australian selectors wouldn't endorse Aaron Finch to, to lead the Australian one-day side. Well, Diz, it was Damien Martin's birthday the other day and uh, we chucked up a brief highlights package of some of his most classical shots. Very easy on the eye was Mardo. Who was the most elegant player that you played with or against? Uh, elegance, you, you speak about our old mate Mardo and hard to go past Mardo but aesthetically pleasing and uh, making hmm. things look very effortless out there. Uh, it's hard to go past Marto. He was a, what a wonderful player he was for, for Western Australia and Australia for many years and, uh, you know, was a was a real big factor in the success that um, Australia had in, in that period of time. He was an important cog in the, the Australian cricket team's engine. That's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, he was as elegant as they come and uh, as probably for pure aesthetically pleasing uh, batsman in world cricket. It's probably hard to go past Marto, to be perfectly honest. Um, there's a lot of wonderful players. Uh, you know, look at Kumar Sangakaras of this world. What a, what a fantastic player he was. I, I, I think Kane Williamson is as, um, is as good as anyone going around in, in that regard. Um, but look, so many... Uh, you know, there's, there's just far too many to mention, isn't there? Um <laughs> A lot of wonderful players, but I'm probably going to stick with Marta uh, there. Um, you know, what a wonderful player he was. On the flip side, who was the ugliest? Who made run scoring look really difficult? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, 
it's hard. It's hard because it's hard to be too critical of someone who continues to turn out. Around. Um, you know, we, we look at you know guys like Shivnarayan Chander, Paul of the West Indies, who um, you know probably to the cricket purist wasn't aesthetically pleasing, but you know, amazingly, he actually. If, if you saw as the bowler let the ball go, he was actually in a very strong position to play all the shots, um, as was Brian Lara. Um, you know, look at Simon Caddick was a wonderful player in that regard. Probably, you know, with, with the big exaggerated movements, you know, across the crease, you know, people would uh, look at it and go, oh, he's, you know, it, it doesn't look aesthetically pleasing, but wow, wasn't Simon Caddick an effective player? And um, one of those type of players, Simon Caddick, that, you know, you blink and, you know, within five, ten minutes, he's, all of a sudden he's 20 not out. And you, you sort of go back over these first 20 runs. How did he get to 20? And he was just one of those players that just found a way to get his innings going. And, and all of a sudden he's 20, 30 not out and he's away. And, uh, you know, but you know, you, it's probably not one of those ones where you remember a specific shot. Whereas you, you look at someone like a, a Sangakara or a Damian Martin and, and you remember the classic cover drive or... The, beautiful cut shot or pull shot and, um, but yeah there's someone like Cato who just uh, just nudge his way to 20 or 30 not out and he's away Diz what can we expect from the strikers this season what can you expect from the strikers well what you will see is a, a group of players with a smile on their face and going out and uh, and enjoying representing the, the Adelaide Strikers franchise um, you know we, we want to go out and, and you know, everyone talks about playing a positive cricket, I suppose. Um, we want to play entertaining cricket. We, we want to, all our fans that come and, and watch us, we, we, want to, we want them going away um, saying that those, those lads really enjoy playing their game and they, um, they go out there with a real um, positive uh, intent to, to play the game, play the game hard, play the game very fair, but they, gee, they have a smile on their face. Um, you know, we know we're we've uh, we feel we've got a very strong squad, uh, all eighteen players, and we know we're going to need to use the majority of our players this season because you know we are very um, uh, very uh, excited about the fact that we've got a number of players that are in and around the one day and T Twenty setups and the well the Australian cricket team in general and all three forms. Um, we're very excited about that. Um, but we also understand that that means that we might lose a, a couple of our players from time to time um, to Australian commitments. So, you know, the, while we'd like to have, you know, all those guys available as much as possible, what, what we do see, what we're excited about is that's going to give some of our uh, players that probably don't get as much game time as they'd, they'd like an opportunity to show what they can do and, and, and maybe uh, show our fans just what they're capable of, and, and for us, that's that's pretty exciting as a franchise. It'll certainly uh, challenge the, the strength and the depth of our squad. Uh, but that's something we're really excited about, and you know, be absolutely, you know, as a franchise, we'll be absolutely delighted to be able to afford opportunities to to you know a lot of our players in in BBL eight. And you're welcome back, Colin Ingram and Rashid Khan for BBL eight. What does it mean to the squad? to have a kind of consistency with those international players? Yeah, I, I'm a fan of, of consistency, of um, particularly with overseas players. Um, you know, my absolute preference, and, and look, I'd, you know, and I have mentioned this in the past, that you know, while sometimes it's unavoidable that you know, sometimes your overseas players aren't available for, 
um, for all the tournament. But as a general rule, uh, you know, you strive as much as we can to have uh, consistency and continuity with your overseas players, especially when you have a number of players that are representing Australia and you have that natural comings and goings of, of your, your local players. If you can have your overseas players, you can have, you know, two guys that are there for the, for the whole tournament. I, I think that's, that's, that's great for consistency. Um, and to have Colin Ingram and Rashid Khan, two fine men uh, and two fantastic cricketers, um, on our books and and fully committed to to the strikers' cause is uh, you know it's something that that we're excited about and we're, we're very uh, very thankful that that they've agreed to uh, to sign on again with us. And this T Twenty cricket really started to hit its straps as your playing days were coming to an end. Imagine peak Jason Gillespie, Gillespie at his best playing in a BBL today. How do you reckon he would have gone? Uh, it's yeah, it's a good question. I, look, I, I think I I would have played a bit. I, I'm not convinced I would have been a. Um, I think I would have been more a squad player than an out lock as a <laughs> first choice player. Um, no, I, I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, look, T20 cricket. I you know I'm, I wasn't the strongest fielder in the world. It must be said. Um, I, I I could make a couple of lusty blows, but you 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 wouldn't you wouldn't pick me on my batting uh, batting ability. I was more renowned as a bit of a blocker and a nicker and nudger, so that just contradicts the needs of a, of a T20 batsman. Um, and and look, while I had had a had a couple of the skills in in T20, um, I, I think I would have been a a, a solid squad player. Um, that would have played the odd game when the when the best bowlers were, were maybe not quite available, but um, but yeah, I it, I I love T Twenty cricket. I played I played a bit of it. I, I think I played about twenty or thirty odd games over my career um, for for Yorkshire. I played one for South Australia. I played one for Australia. I mainly played for Yorkshire and um, and the and the Bad Rockets in the ICL. So. Um, that was the extent of my T uh, Twenty career, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I um, probably wasn't uh, wasn't the best T uh, Twenty player, it must be said. Well, there are no night watchmen in T Twenty cricket, are there? No, and that's <laughs> that's that, that's the problem. <laughs> well, Tiz, thank you very much for your time, mate. All the best this summer with the Strikers, and we'll hopefully to see you on the selection panel one day in the future. Oh, you never know, mate. No, but thanks, Sam. Good on you, mate. Up next is cricket.com.au's women's editor, Laura Jolly. Welcome, LJ. Thanks for having me, Sam. My pleasure. Now, LJ, the Australian women's cricket team completed a one-day whitewash over Pakistan in Malaysia, of all places. Who were the standout performers for you, LJ? Well, I think the really pleasing thing for the Australians was that we actually saw a range of players standing up at different times. We had Megan Chute and Nicola Kerry, um, who really stood out in that first match alongside the spinners. And then the second game, it was all Meg Lanning and Rachel Haynes, who shared that record-breaking partnership. And yesterday, on Monday, Elisa Healy just missed out on a ton. But excitingly, we saw Ashley Gardner have a bit of a breakthrough with the bat when she scored 62 off 37, which is really great signs for the World T20 coming up. And possibly the most impressive thing was the way Sophie Molyneux has stepped up in her first one-day series. 
Yeah, Sophie Molyneux, let's get on to her straight away. I mean, she was basically unhittable in that one-day series, and she must be giving the selectors a pretty good headache because Jess Jonathan, who's the incumbent sort of left-arm spinner all-rounder in the side, she's out injured. Sophie's come in, and she's hit the ground running. Yeah, it's been incredible. For a player who's 20 to show that amount of poise and confidence against world-class players, it's just incredible what she's been able to do. But I think we can't forget that uh, Jess Jonathan is the world's top-ranked or in the, one of the top-ranked Limited Overs bowlers in the world. And so any team would be penciling her in without question. So the question, I guess, will be when Jonathan comes back and how much match, match practice she does get before the World T20. But there is also, I think, no reason why they can't play both players. They did it a couple of times in India in March. And I think given the wickets in Guyana for the World T20 are going to be pretty low and slow, they might go to, with one less pace bowler instead. All right. Now, Australia have won 16 of their past 21 days. LJ, why is this team so formidable? Why can no other team seem to get on top of them? I think it's their depth. Uh, in T20s, one or two really good performances mean pretty much any team can win on any given day. Um, in women's cricket particularly, I think the gap between the top teams and the rest of the pack is much more pronounced in the one-day game, and Australia just have so many resources to rely upon. In those three matches, we saw Megan Shute get rested for a game and Elise Villani couldn't even get a game. Um, they'd make any team in the world. Pakistan would have been pretty happy on Monday when they had Lanning and Bolton out early on, but then you've got Healy scoring runs instead. And they were six down with 10 overs to go. The commentators were saying maybe Australia would get bowled out and then Gardner and Molyneux put on another 100 runs. <laughs> so I think... Um, I think you never want to see Meg Lanning out injured, but I think last summer has been a real turning point for that team because they had to learn how to win without it, and it's seen a lot of players really step up. That's a good point. Uh, Meg, in 69 matches, LJ, she's got 12 centuries. That's the most ever by any women's player in one-day internationals, and it looks like she's gone up to another level. What have you noticed differently since she's come back in the side? You've spoken about the effect it's had on the other players, but what about Meg? What's, what have you seen different about her since she's come back into the Australian setup? I think she's just loving life. She's loving being out there and playing cricket. As she said herself in a piece she did for direct hit, she really struggled with that time on the sidelines. Being out of the team it was a real shock to her system. And so now she's just a whole new person, reborn out there, loving being back in the game. And we all know how competitive Meg is. I think that injury has really lit a fire in her belly to go out there and just score as many runs as possible. And she's also the fittest she's ever been because she couldn't hold a bat for months. So she just spent months and months running. And I think that's also paying off for her. That sounds like a terrible thing. Runs and months of running. I don't know if I could be doing that. No, I don't think she's a fan of running, but she's very, very good at it now. What about a captaincy? Have you seen that change a little bit too? Because I think in that direct hit piece, she was talking about how when she was out of that side, um, she didn't. She got a new perspective on what it's like to be dropped from the team, and now she's come back into it. Have you seen her leadership change, or has she... Uh, added anything differently to what she was before the injury? I think just personality-wise, she has a lot more empathy for players who are on the cusp of the team and she's probably a bit better at communicating with her team members um, about their selection and just on the field and things that she probably took for granted before. She now has a much better appreciation of the players she's playing alongside. So we've seen that, a lot more positivity in that sort of sense. And I think also just her new working relationship with Rachel Haynes seems to be going really well. Um, they're pretty bit different in the way they go about their captaincy. Rachel's a bit more analytical, does a bit more planning. So I think they complement each other really well there. 
Now they've got three uh, three T Twenty internationals before the World T Twenty in the Caribbean. What are we expecting out of this series against Pakistan? Are we thinking they're going to play their full strength side, or is now a bit of a time for some last minute experimentation to get that eleven nutted out? What do you reckon? I think we'll see pretty much a full strength side, um, especially with the batting order, because they know the game plan they want to play. And I think the time for experimentation in that sense is over. It's all about maintaining their consistency heading into the tournament. But that said, they do have three T20s in five days against Pakistan now. So we could see a few changes in the bowling attack just to give the players a rest, like um, Megan Shipp being rested for the third ODI, and especially given how hot and humid it is over there. But I do think they know their best 11 or 12, and it's just about getting those guys absolutely primed for the Caribbean. So that's the big focus, obviously. How do you reckon the team is shaping up for the World T20 to go out there and and win that title? Uh, It's all systems go now. They've got these last three T20s in Pakistan to, to put the final touches on their preparations. But we saw against New Zealand winning all three matches against a team who they hadn't won a series against for about five years. That's been huge for them. I think they're playing the best T20 cricket I've seen from them in years. Mm. Their whole new game plan, stacking the top of the order with their biggest hitters and then just having the elite batters in Lanning, Haynes and Perry coming in in that middle order, it's got them in a really good spot, I think. And then you look at the bowling attack and a few spinners in excellent form and hopefully Jess Johnson to come back in. So um, I think... They're looking very good. LJ, are you willing to declare this is the best T20 team Australia's ever fielded? That's, that's a big call, <laughs> but they're definitely shaping up like it. I think you've, when you've got players like Healy who are really showing their potential and what they're capable of as players now, Rachel Haynes is 31 and she's the best, in the best form she's ever been in, finding whole new areas of her game. It's one of the most complete teams we've seen from Australia, I think. And is it fair to say that WBBL and these global T20 tournaments that are now uh, springing up, like there was a uh, T20 IPL women's exhibition game earlier this year, do you think that development um, in those global tournaments and the fact that these women are playing more T20 cricket is benefiting not only the Australian side but the, the women's game in general? Absolutely. I think the Australian players themselves have pointed out now that they're just playing so much T20 cricket It's non-stop for them. It's also really helped the up-and-coming players. We've seen three young renegades make their debuts for Australia in the last month, and they're all teenagers, and Sophie Molyneux is 20. So for them to be at that level and ready to play for Australia at that age just shows how much of an impact the professionalism and standards of the WBBL is, is getting those guys ready to be. So LJ, for all the Aussie fans out there, who are some of the players they should keep an eye out for, for this, not only for this uh, three-match T20 series against Pakistan, but for the World T20 in the Caribbean? Um, Ash Gardner is one that's got me really excited. I think that half-century against Pakistan was a real breakthrough moment for her, and hopefully she's now able to take that form and bring it when she comes in at number three in the T20s. Uh, we've seen Elisa Healy's in the absolute form of her life, and it's I think it's brilliant that we're seeing someone... Like, her, she scored more runs than any other Australian in the last 12 months, which is incredible. And then we've got a couple of young guns who've come along with Soph Molyneux, as we've touched on, and also the young leggy Georgia Wareham, who made her debut against New Zealand late last month and who looks like she could play a really big role, especially in the uh, Caribbean wickets. And who are the teams that the Aussies have to look out for? I was listening to Mel Jones the other day, and she was saying that up to six teams could win this comp, but what do you reckon? Who are the main threats to the Aussies? 
uh, primarily in their own group. It's New Zealand and India. It's pretty cutthroat. There's four group matches, five teams, only the top two get through. And New Zealand and India would both be fancying their chances of nabbing a semi-final spot. So the first thing for the Aussies is to make sure there are no upsets, no hiccups, nothing goes wrong in that group stage. And then hopefully once they get to the semi-finals, I think it'll be, um, we'll see England and the West Indies as the other two main contenders. England obviously are a sensational T20 side, all sorts of stars in that lineup, even without Sarah Taylor. And the Windies on their home turf as the reigning champions, they're going to be out to put on a pretty good show. And I guess the Aussies want revenge from that 2016 World T20 final loss, right? They'll be wanting to qualify, but then also beat the Windies in the final, right? Absolutely. And I think uh, you can definitely see that a bit, especially with Meg Lanning at the moment. I think that World Cup semi-final loss last year, as well as that World T20 in 2016, are both really haunting her and her team, and that's made them more determined than ever to go out and get one get one of those trophies back. Watch out. Now, LJ, you're going to be on the ground in the Caribbean for us, won't you? So you'll be there reporting, you'll be there following the team. Yes, we'll be. First up is Antigua for some warm-up matches, and then off to Guyana for the group stage. Fantastic. Well, we'll hopefully speak to you while you're over there. Thank you very much for this tremendous insight, and uh, safe travels. Great. Thanks, Sam. That's it for this week's episode. Tickets are still available for the Gillette ODI series against South Africa. Head to cricket.com.au forward slash tickets to grab those. And don't forget, you can watch all the action of the JLT Shepherd Shield live and free at cricket.com.au. And let's see our live app.